You don't know how to ride a bike? Hey, folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Um, today, we're talking to Jabari Jones. How's it going, Jabari? Okay, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, yeah, it's a lovely day. It's not too um, humid, mm. which I find stifling. Um, it's like a, it's a dry heat. It's like a yeah. It's, it's a nice change. Cool. Several weeks. Yeah. It's been a mess. Yeah. Um, let's uh, not waste time. Let's not okay. waste this day. What are a few things that people should know about you? Um, a few things. I. I've lived in Vermont now for um, a little more than two years. Um, I hadn't lived in Vermont before um, several years ago when I was uh, part of the Bread and Puppet Theater in the Northeast Kingdom um, and lived there. I was part of the theater for about two and a half years. Uh, so now I'm back. It's my third summer. Uh, I work as a baker, a local bakery. Um, what else? Um, I don't know. I have a lot of, in, a lot of different interests right now. Um, I am an organizer with the uh, black lives matter of greater Burlington, which is a relatively new group started this past spring. And don't know what else. Uh, sometime artist. Um, I ride my bike a lot all over the place. And I'm a Leo. Uh, my birthday's coming up. Well, happy almost birthday. Thanks. When's your birthday? August 17th. Okay, work. More yeah. on being a Leo later. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> so... Did, did Bread and Puppet bring you to Vermont? Is that adequate yeah. to say? Is that, okay. Yeah. I came up with some friends in the summer of 98 um, to see their last big show, which is called Our Domestic Resurrection Circus. Um, it's this big outdoor event, mostly outdoors, um, on their farm in Glover. And then I came back the next summer for a two-week apprenticeship. So I was actually living on the farm, uh, doing everything from chores to um, helping to build puppets and and perform shows. And uh, that's what really introduced me to Vermont. Yeah. And I've come back to Vermont partly so I could be close to the theater and, and participate as much as I can because it's a really incredible place and a really incredible community and uh, and the theater work is um, yeah it's beautiful what is it that makes bread and puppet different than other theaters um I think the first thing is that they're one of the oldest self-supporting theater companies in the country. They've been around for decades. Um, they started around the same time as the San Francisco mime troupe. And um, they don't take or, or seek any government grants. Um, well, with the exception of one little grant that they needed to keep their this huge old barn from falling down. But other than that, like they don't seek any grants from like the Ford Foundation or whatever. Um, they make their living from performing shows and selling art. Um, and that's about it. Um, what else? They Their work is regularly infused with a a social political awareness. Um, I would say typically left leaning, a progressive and, um, anti-war, uh, environmentalist, um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think it's for me, it's, it's, it's a really great example of, effective but also beautiful 
uh, and weird and fun um, uh, political art. So they uh, make art. Did you, were you working as an artist for them as well? Yeah. Um, artist, performer. I mean, we, members of the company do all kinds of things. Um, we pick up an instrument and form a brass band. Um, we sing together, um, perform together, travel together, live together. It's like, a well, back when I lived there, it was like just a mini commune, really. Um, it's a family-owned theater. Um, Peter and Elka Schumann um, are the patriarch and matriarch of the theater, the family. And... Um, yeah, uh, as we speak, there's a summer, there's there's a performance going on. Uh, and during the summer, they perform every Friday evening and then Saturday, uh, Sunday afternoons. And that's the summer of the rest of the year. Typically, there's a company of people that goes on tour. Uh, they take um, a few shows on tour, different places, typically colleges and universities, theater festivals. Um, they may do a residency somewhere. I think this past spring they went to Puerto Rico and uh, collaborated with a um, a political theater company based in Puerto Rico um, that facilitates parades and protests. And right now they're protesting the the state of the of the. The country, the state of the country that's being neglected by the U.S. government and taken advantage of. Um, so, yeah, they went down there and collaborated with them. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of thing they do. Um, I know that you, as far as just one medium of art that you do, I know that you make woodcut art. How did you begin with that? Um, yeah, I make wood cuts or linoleum cuts. Um, how did I start with that? I guess I started, I don't know, I've always made art since I was little and always excelled in school and art classes. Um, and when I went to art school, uh, after graduating high school, I decided to major in printmaking. And out of all the printmaking forms that uh, I practiced, I, I think I liked linoleum cuts the most. Uh, I didn't do too many wood cuts, um, but just in, in general, like relief printmaking. Um, and lately I've been, uh, I took a course at a local Soul Screen uh, collective, Iskra, and, um, and got to really get back into Soul Screening. Um, I haven't done any lately. I've been busy organizing yep it's but a great I'd like thing to, get to be busy with back into art yeah yeah um yeah I mean I love a lot of um bread and puppets it, maybe what kind of might be a little linoleum cut uh prints yeah those are um, yeah those are wood cuts they they use wood yeah okay yeah but I feel like I wonder if you were behind some of that, and uh, yeah. No, all of that is by Peter Schumann. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, the patriarch. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Founder of the theater. Okay. And uh, yeah, he does all of those uh, woodcuts. Um, other people print them, and. Um, yeah, he just he's done just tons, tons and tons of paintings and sculptures that are then turned into puppets. Uh, yeah. So it takes like slabs of clay uh, and and sculpt them into forms on tables, and then uh, a piece of plastic will be laid over it, and then uh, cardboard. Will be corrugated cardboard be soaked in water to separate the pieces of paper uh, because the, the paper is very strong, uh, and then pieces that, that paper will be ripped up. And meanwhile, someone will will um, 
boil like a pot of cornstarch glue and then um, teams of people will will paste several layers of this paper using the cornstarch glue over this clay mold and once it's dry it comes off and that is made into a puppet so Peter sculpts the mold but other like teams of people team up to to actually make the paper mache sculpture and then he will go over it with paint and other things and other people will mount it to sticks and and then it becomes a giant puppet. So that's, that's, I just, yeah, that's the process basically. That sounds like a totally original process or is that something that they learned? Um, I don't know if they learned it. I mean, I think he's been doing puppetry for a very long time. Uh, puppetry is basically just a sculpture that moves. Um, and I think like every year is something different, different show, a different, um, color scheme, um, typically just, yeah, using, you might use old paper mache puppets or make some new ones. And, um, it's a wonderful process to be a part of, I think. Yeah. Just to be a hand that goes into this huge project. Sounds really exciting. Yeah. (laughs) I used to, um, I, I visited there a few times, uh, while I was in college Mm -hmm. at, uh, Linen State. Mm -hmm. So... I'm uh, a little familiar okay. to the grounds. I never saw um, a show there. Oh, you should go. I know. I uh, Yeah, if they're still doing them, then I haven't missed my opportunity, and that I'm happy about. But, um, yeah, I was more into just, like, tripping and, mm-hmm. like, walking around and um, looking at all of the, like, gigantic faces and stuff. Hmm. Um, but, you know, to each their own, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm happy to get this deeper knowledge of what was actually going on there. Let's talk about biking for a little bit. Yeah. Um, well, I couldn't afford to keep a car. Um, at this in old, Vermont. Yeah, at this uh I had lived in Maine for a little bit and bought uh a 2004 Subaru and um and then moved here uh, a little more than 2 years ago and one thing after another was breaking down on it and uh, I just had to sell it. And since then, it's been riding my bike, even through the winters. What yeah. kind of bike do you have? Um, well, I originally traded my bike. I had a hybrid and now I have, uh, oh, what is it? I guess an 18-speed. I think it's an 18-speed um, with a basket on the front. Which is really nice. Uh, it's the first time in my life I've had real, a, a basket on the front. So I, get, I usually carry around a backpack of all kinds of stuff. And sometimes I go, I go grocery shopping and just would just be carrying a ton of, of weight on my back, on my bike, which is ridiculous. So, uh, you know, so I'm finally taking it easy. Basket on the front. <laughs> Never the looking front. back. Never, ever looking back. It's It's really, really nice. Um, yeah, so I, I, I live at the top of the hill by UVM hospital and I bike downhill all the way to the bakery, um, early in the morning and bike uphill on the way back and up till, well, yeah, past couple of winters, I haven't had, I haven't ha- felt the need to get studded tires, but I did slip a couple of times, uh, three times. Last winter, which was not fun, um, so I think I'll get studded tires this winter. It's an ordeal, but uh, I found that um, I was trying to tough it out, but then I I realized, wait a minute, there's a there's a shuttle bus that goes up the hill. I can just ride downhill in the morning, get on the shuttle bus. <laughs> And not not keel over in the middle of winter, so that's what I started doing. And it's 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 kind of like um, a practice in self care. Like there's no reason why I should destroy myself going uphill in the winter with all the snow and slush and people driving like idiots. So I'm taking the shuttle bus up the hill this winter, but I think I'll get studded tires so I don't slip and fall going downhill or whatever. Wait tell, wait, tell me about the Ben and Jerry's the ben, bikes. Have you noticed these green-ass bikes that are all... 
Have you been on Church Street lately? Oh, God. Okay, go walk up Church Street. Or maybe they have them. No, they have them down here at the Echo Center, in front of the Echo Center. Um, you can just rent one for the day or whatever. Um, yeah, just take one out and, and try it. <laughs> I mean, you've got this huge bike trail that goes all the way around the lake, and you got bike trails that go like all the way down the South Burlington, the North End, all over the city. Go ride a bike. <laughs> well, it's still summer. Go ride a bike. You hear that, folks? <laughs> this, is, this is a challenge to you. Go ride a bike. Well, you have no excuses. We'll see. We'll see how we edit it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want it to be okay. like a PSA. Yeah. <laughs> Not like targeted. <laughs> okay, but yes, okay. Me, me too, me too. Okay. okay. Um, oh, what, what is the bike scene like in Burlington? Is there such a, what is that like? What is the bike scene? Bur- well, Burlington's a weird town. Um, it, I mean, it's very touristy. So I think that's, that, I guess that's the reason for the, the Ben and Jerry's bikes. Um, I don't think they'll be around in the winter. And then, um, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I bike to and from work and everywhere else. Um, sometimes I see, uh, adults and kids, I guess, families on their bikes. Um, I don't know. I see people biking everywhere and there's a decent amount of bike lanes. Um, so it's a fairly bike friendly city. Uh, there's still potholes that will swallow an entire tire out there. So it's dangerous. It's kind of dangerous. It's, it's a little risky. You just got to keep your eyes open. Otherwise it's, yeah, it's, it's a bikeable town. Keep calling it a city. It's not really a city. It's a town. Um, I mean, I've biked in Oakland, California, I've biked in New York city. Um, yeah, Burlington, Burlington is, a, is a very bikeable town, I'd say. Um, have you noticed the Segway tours around town? Yeah, I think they're pretty dorky. Yeah, I have, a, <laughs> I have an unvarnished opinion. Every time I see them, I'm like, oh, there goes the dork squad. They look so dorky. <laughs> I do! Like, that's just my honest... Um, biased opinion so controversial <laughs> so the segue as a, a mode of transportation how do you feel about it um i don't know it looks like a very privileged motor transportation <laughs> frankly they had a, a a ballot uh an item on the ballot like like uh, i don't know a year or so ago to what was it? I think it was to like modify some part of the of Main Street so that the segways would could be able to could go over the train tracks without risking falling over or whatever. I don't know, some kind of crap. Whatever. I will never ride one. That's that's my I'm taking a stand on that. <laughs> um I was in San Francisco recently and I saw a Segway tour and unfortunately one of the members of the tour fell over <laughs> on their uh, Segway uh-huh. it was really sad Okay, <laughs> which is why you will never catch me on one I will ride my bike I will take my chances on my bike I'll wear a helmet but I'm not riding a, I'm, riding, I'm riding a Segway I, I like my wheels in front of it, one in front of the other, not side by side. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, so how about the bakery? And don't you think it's interesting that you spent so much time at Bread and Puppet and you also bake bread? That is interesting. Isn't Did you it? ever? Do you ever like 
ruminate on that? Do you ever marinate on that? Um, no, it's a pretty, it's a very linear progression. I, um, didn't have an interest in baking until I went to Bread and Puppet, uh, where I, I think I got a taste of what I'd call real bread. Um, as worlds apart from Wonder Bread, which is just trash. Um, this is real, like, sourdough, um baked in a wood-fired oven and is just this thing that's really alive. And um, it was after that. I, I tried baking on my own for a while and then moved out to California and got into professional baking. I um, was out there for about six years and still going. And I definitely prefer baking with a sourdough culture. Um, I think that... Well, fermentation is is crucial to making good bread or a lot of good foods. And one of the reasons why I think particularly Americans uh, that are on the standard American diet um, are having all kinds of digestive problems is because they're eating, like, garbage. And, sorry, uh, they're eating garbage. And a lot of it is food that, maybe decades ago used to be fermented, but no longer is uh, because of the needs of business. They needed to make it fast, and and so they speed up the process, but fermentation takes time. And, I mean, this is, yeah, I've, I've ruminated a lot on this, uh, like why that is, why things changed. Um feeling that uh, that sourdough bread is an example of a culture that uh, is constantly being um, it's constantly under the threat of being wiped out by consumer cultures capitalist culture um, in the sense that making good food and living a good life takes time and capitalism eats time. We constantly are forced to work faster, uh, for less money. And, um, so productivity goes up, efficiency goes up, profits go up, but our wages stay flat or they go down. And so we're constantly in this rat race. Like we have to go faster and faster um, just to keep up and all that time that we're spending like in our cars on our way to or from work um, or time at work doing things that are completely unsatisfying in our lives. That's time that we could be spending with friends, with family, making good food that we will enjoy eating, not like crap fast food, eating alone at our desk or in our car that time belongs to us, but we give it away. So that's one of the reasons why there's bread and bread and puppet is because it's political. Um, and I carried that with me. Um, so that's one reason why I prefer baking sourdough breads and baking as a profession, baking bread as a profession is something that that I find some f fulfillment in. Um, yeah. Have you seen the movie Sorry to Bother You? I did. Tell me your, uh, let's get a hot take on Sorry <laughs> to Bother You. It doesn't, it can be a cool take. It can okay. it honestly be a, just a warm whatever you have. It's a really weird but very good film. Um, yeah, what can I say about it? It's I really enjoyed uh its surreal qualities and it's it's very clear political um dialectic journey uh and uh and uh, just like just just like a very clear political statement, I think, within this really weird uh, 
fiction, uh, but eerily familiar universe in which um, wage labor is 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 giving way to slave labor, uh, giving way to like mutant slave labor. <laughs> um, it's it's eerily familiar. I mean, even in taking place in the Bay Area, like I recognize some of those landmark streets and buildings and know that I moved out just at the time when things were becoming really too expensive um, for a lot of people to live there uh, with all sorts of big tech money moving into San Francisco and a lot of folks in San Francisco being priced out by Google and other big businesses, uh, big tech businesses, so people moving over to the Bay Area and Bay Area landlords jacking up the rent, just taking an opportunity to do that. And, um, yeah, I still have folks back there, some friends who are struggling. And so, yeah, the um, Sorry to Bother You is this, it's, it's not a, I think someone might call it a dystopia, sort of like this dark future, but it's not. It's like the, it's the present. It's just with this surreal lens. I'm like, okay, let's take a look at what this will be like, you know, five to 10 years from now where people are working for this weird company. And what, what I, <laughs> I mean, there's so many layers to the film. It's like get out. There's so many layers. Um, one of the things that they, that they put out there that I think uh, I think is interesting is that that is um, code switching or the 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 white voice. What is that? And it's so cool the way that um, Danny Glover breaks it down for for the main character. Like, no, 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 no. It's not a nasal voice. No, it's not about that. It's it's what they want to sound like. Like, whoa, this is getting in deep. I didn't know what I was getting into. Meaning, uh, <laughs> white people also have a white voice, in a way, in their imagination. That's that's what the film is partly talking about. Is uh, partly the way that people of color navigate through a system that is. Uh, controlled by and that ultimately benefits uh, an elite white ruling class. Um, All the myriad ways that that people of color navigate that system. Either, on the one hand, they use a white voice um, to reach customers uh, and, and do their jobs, um, as a way of, of adapting to the demands of the system, to the culture, the dominant culture, and all of its weirdness, all of its neuroses. Um, and, or like uh, the, uh, the other main character uh, or supporting character uh, who wanted to start a union, they wanted to unionize. So trying to leverage one's labor power to get something out of the system. It's also another way that people of color, well, like underclass, like poor people, working class people have used to navigate this, their own survival in this and negotiate their own survival in this system. Uh, so I love how the film showed all of that. Even the art scene, um, uh, Tessa, was it Tessa, Tessa Thompson? Thompson. Yeah, her, her character is awesome. Detroit, Jesus. yes, has a performance art um, exhibit. Well, yeah, 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 and, she, um, yeah. What happens in that scene? I think she uses a white voice too. She, she, she's on the stage and, uh-huh. and invites people to throw things at her. Oh, she's using a, a British accent, actually. Yeah, Remember, yeah, mm-hmm. and which, I think which isn't necessarily explained. She just. She just does it. Is using a British it. accent. Right. And she encourages the audience to um, throw objects at her. Yeah, like, like, like cell phones and balloons filled with like pig's blood or something. Yes. Sort of reminiscent mm-hmm. of the movie Carrie. And also yeah. reminiscent of the performance artist. Um, 
I don't remember. Martina Abramovich. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think so. I think that's her name. Um, We're going to go. Yeah. And I forgot that her name was just Detroit. This character. Yeah. What is that about? about? Yeah. So there's so many, so many layers. Mm. um, But yeah, there are, I mean, I wasn't very, I wasn't deep into the art scene at all in Oakland, but just observing from the outside, it is this, it's kind of art world that I never wanted to be a part of uh, where people are, constantly struggling to be seen, be heard, be noticed, uh, get picked up by galleries, gallery owners, collectors, um, patrons. And, um, and it's just, it's like selling, it's just selling commodities to rich people. And I had just zero negative interest in doing that. Um, you do have your own art, business though don't you not really <laughs> you don't want to i started i started something uh called radiant black press and it just has gone nowhere i got caught up uh putting more energy into organizing this past winter uh, and spring and now into the summer and just haven't taken a pause to make art so it's just lingering out there on the interwebs um collecting dust and maybe eventually I'll, I'll go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> I did my research. <laughs> um, so you're a Leo. Yeah. Is it Leo season? It is Leo season. Talk a bit about what that means to you. Well, it's complicated. Um, I think for a very long time I didn't identify, really get it. Like, I feel like, I feel like I'm an an atypical Leo. I just don't really feel like I fully fit this profile. And and I think I just, as I got older, I started to dig deeper into astrology and, Oh, Oh, well, there's a lot more to this than just the sun sign. Uh, so yeah, my son's in Leo moon is in Capricorn and, uh, my rising sign is cancer. Yeah. And that explains a lot. I think. Go on. Well, let's see. It explains the way that I feel like my life has been on a seesaw. Um, Like the typical, I guess, Capricorn is very pragmatic, rational, um, hardworking, practical, uh, very grounded. And Leos are more uh, exuberant. They like to be the life of the party. Um, they, yeah, in, indulge themselves and um, enjoy being the leader. And uh, just seems more more outgoing and and uh, um, maybe not as practical as a Capricorn. So, so I've gone back and forth between like f- following my heart and my dreams and just like getting a job and paying the bills and doing and getting some like dependable income or whatever. Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to achieve a balance, but still a struggle between those two things that just, it's just a constant tension. Um, but the cancer rising is interesting. I mean, that's supposed to be, your inner true self and um it makes a lot of sense i'm i am i think i'm like a friendly outgoing type person but i'm also a homebody i also like just to go home and chill out in my room (laughs) not be bothered and i like to cook uh i like a clean kitchen um yeah um and would love to just live in a beautiful house decorated with art full of plants uh with plenty of uh natural light and that w- i would be happy just living in a home like that yeah so I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a homebody but i do need to get out and socialize um so yeah astrology it's interesting it's complicated it 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 explains some things or at least 
it it creates an interesting story or frame to see one's life through. That's um, that's what uh, that's the work that it does in people's life. It gives them a lens to look through. You know, yeah. uh, religion. Uh, am I comparing the two? I don't know, but like religion serves the same function for a lot of people I think also mm-hmm. it kind of orders things for them you know um, it's something they can look to and say oh that's why that's happening so I don't have any wars been started over astrology though do you know <laughs> not that I know of <laughs> the Sagittarius conflict no never we all remember it. that don't we no no that, that didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> I'll get I'll get back to you on that. Okay, do some Google that. I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> <clears throat> um, <laughs> okay. Um, would you consider yourself an activist? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little? That's like that was like <laughs> I don't know, stupid. We're gonna edit that one out. Okay. But really, I just wanted to say, do you want to talk a bit about Black Lives Matter of Greater Burlington? Sure. Um, it's something that started, it kind of started last summer, end of, well, the end of last summer, a group of folks got together, um, to talk about racial justice organizing in Burlington, greater Burlington area, Vermont. Um, some of us had been a part of, uh, Black Lives Matter Vermont, which is based in Winooski, and felt like it wasn't working. Um, there were people who had weird experiences. Um, people had conflicts with the uh, leadership and just felt like it wasn't their place to be. So... Um, so a bunch of folks, and and there were other folks who had, had never been uh, a part of Black Lives Matter Vermont, uh, but were interested in, in racial justice organizing. So we all got together, and there were a series of meetings, conversations, um, decided that we wanted to start a, a new Black Lives Matter group. At first it was... Um, it was it wasn't called Black Lives Matter or Greater Burlington. It was two caucuses, two affinity groups, one for people of color called POC Caucus and the other um, for white identified people, which now is called the White Caucus for Collective Liberation. Um, so it started out as those two caucuses and, and we both caucuses would meet at least once a month and then w- members of both caucuses would meet together in a racial justice collective meeting once a month to discuss like what we've been doing in our caucuses and figure out what kind of work we wanted to do together. And, um, but with the, with the, the, I guess the intention that the, that the white caucus would be directly accountable to the POC caucus. The POC caucus would be, uh, the leadership giving the direction collectively to the larger group, which eventually became uh, called Black Lives Matter of Greater Burlington. We adopted the Black Lives Matter principles, uh, but very early on we decided we wanted to add two more. Um, One is about healing. That healing is, should be the core of our work. Um, it should be both the process, but also our goal, um, that all social justice is about ultimately about healing, healing ourselves, healing our communities, our, our world, our planet. Um, and we felt like that was something that was missing with Black Lives Matter Vermont. Um, just to make that explicit. And the other principle that we adopted early on it was about collective leadership that like what we're striving for is collective liberation, uh, from this system, this oppressive, uh, system of domination. 
and uh, but we need a collective leadership to get there. Like everyone has to step up in their own way, um, and figure out like what does liberation look like to them. Uh, because without collective liberation, there's no such thing as individual liberation, uh, and vice versa. And we also made it clear that we didn't want people of color, like we didn't want white folks to show up to help us. Um, this isn't like, oh, we want white folks to, to show up and help us and then feel good about themselves. Uh, we're directly asking white folks, like what stake do you have in dismantling this system? Um, because essentially whiteness is the illusion of freedom. Uh, and as long as white identified people don't believe that they have any real personal stake or even as a class of people, collective stake in dismantling the system, which gives them, uh, relative, uh, privileges, uh, but it's still nevertheless oppressive. Um, they will forever be in the way of collective liberation for everybody. What are you most encouraged about within the movement? Most encouraged? Um, I think I'm most encouraged about seeing that um, people are still showing up. I think that's half the battle. Um, I think there's a lot of pressure uh that keeps people from not showing up, whether it's um, they're tired from working all the time, um, maybe they, they can't find uh, childcare or caregivers if they're occupied taking care of other people, um, or if they are just uh, in despair because there's so much awful shit happening. Um, it's hard to know where to start. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, I think that this group, Black Lives Matter, Greater Burlington, it provides a place for people to land and to begin. Um, and I'm most encouraged by, I think the possibilities of this caucus idea, um, that the caucuses, specifically one for people of color and another for white identified people, serve as containers or refuges so that people of color can be in a room all by themselves um, without white people around. Uh, and so that pressure leaves, but in different ways, white supremacy systems or just other systems of domination show up in the room. And having that space for ourselves allows us to see that and deal with it. Meanwhile, white folks can touch can talk, talk to other white folks about white supremacy. There's a lot to go, dig up there because there's such this assumption that, Oh, you know, white people don't suffer as much as everybody else. So we're just not, not going to talk about it, but not talking about suffering does not make it go away. It makes it worse. And that is the history of white people in this country whether they know it or not, and they ought to know it, and they ought to learn like what that actually that history actually is. It's a history of suffering um, that is used to reinforce this system of domination. And so, to unearth that, to bring that into the light, to process that, to grieve, to understand the roots of that and the causes of that suffering, have I think revolutionary potential. Um. Yeah, I think it's through through it's through suffering. I think this is what the Buddhists say: through suffering, you find enlightenment. I think confronting the the root causes of this system that oppresses all of us in different ways, that makes all of us universally suffer. Uh, and and working collectively towards collective liberation is as revolutionary potential. I think for far too long, 
racism has been thought of something that is number one separate from class, which it's not, uh, and to something that is just black people's problem. It's just a problem people of color. It's their it's their problem, and. Uh, quote Otis Madison's lecturer in California, black man. He said, um, "The purpose of racism is to control the behavior of white people, not black people. For blacks, guns and tanks are sufficient." And I think that really encapsulates like the the history of racism. It's invented by history. Racism, as we know, is invented by European colonists. Um. As a as a way of bringing social order to this this new capitalist society here on this continent, this new settler colonialist society, um, which required a new social order, because you had people coming from uh, mostly Britain but other European countries, and in Europe they had their own sort of racialism, like their oh the Hungarian race the the Polish race the 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 British race and, and the Jewish race and so on, but that didn't work over here. Uh, they had religious divisions, um, but then they had uh, indigenous people. This whole continent full of indigenous people, and they're bringing over Africans as slaves, and they're also bringing over other Europeans as either the ruling class or as um, I, um, what is it? Uh, um, indentured servants, just a little better than slavery, and uh, and they needed to to figure out a new social order for this new capitalist enterprise. Um, and racism uh, became something new; it became developed. I think, uh, if I'm remembering right, the the class of white people um, as as a new class of people was invented around like 1641 like it has clear origins and it's from that point that Africans black Africans become the equivalent of slaves slaves become the equivalent of black Africans because a very clear line the color line and and so that's one thing that I think we, we're constantly ruminating on in our our, our caucuses, uh, amongst other things. But um, understanding that um, that racism is one of the core contradictions in this country, and. Um, I mean, this country was built on slavery and genocide and the brutal exploitation of, of uh, working people. Um, and yet, America's come to symbolize freedom and equality and um, equal opportunity and all of that. Uh, and these are just contradictions. You know, we still have slavery. Um that's uh, that's uh, established in the Thirteenth Amendment, the Constitution. Uh, slavery is abolished, except for except as a punishment for a crime. So we have two million people in this country that are part of the um, American uh, incarceration system, and labor, forced labor, is actually a requirement. If you're able, you have to work. That's slavery. They're paid like nothing, pennies on the dollar. Like, we still have slavery in this country. Um, and capitalism cannot survive without it. I think it's something that people just have to get used to understanding that capitalism cannot survive without slavery. And in fact, slavery before the Civil War was a very, very profitable enterprise. Um, there are four million slaves, four million enslaved people before the Civil War. Like that, it doesn't become that big of a thing unless it's very profitable, even as for just a small number of people, um, north and south. I mean, I can go on and on 
um, I think in order to solve the society's problems, we have to confront these basic contradictions. Have to. And understand how they affect our lives today. How they're very present. How history is present today. And uh, so I think this caucus system, the processing that we do in these caucuses is a part of that work. We have to change ourselves, not just laws or policies, programs, things like that, or elect this person or that person. We have to change ourselves in order to change the culture that then affects the society, which includes government and laws and policy. What are you most discouraged with within the movement? What am I most discouraged with? Um... I guess I'm most discouraged or frustrated with the time that it takes. You know, uh, I am just like anybody else, really, in in our group, uh, or most anybody else. I have a full-time job. Um, I don't have any kids, but I don't have any kids, but I, I, my life is, like, occupied. Um, and... You know, at the end of the day, I'm tired and need to find the energy to do whatever organizing work is in front of me and show up to meetings, participate. Um, or I may go out to, say, the the one of the the nurses' union pickets, um, participate in that. You know, I I, I uh, meanwhile. I feel like there's a lot going on and we may only meet once a month over here and, and then once a month in our collective meetings and there's so much to do and so little time that we have to do it. Meanwhile, Donald Trump and his regime are, are just, just destroying this country, making a lot of people suffer. Uh, neat, like actual Nazis are in the streets, including here in Vermont. There are several um, where they're where they're like neo-Confederate, neo-Nazi, white supremacist, terrorist organizations, legit terrorist organizations, uh, active actively recruiting. I'm sure in Vermont. Um, and. You know, one of the things that we're still trying to figure out is how to make decisions. Um, so that's one of my main frustrations, I think, is we have to move faster, but we only have so much time in our days. Uh, all of us have lives, and yet our lives are on the line. Um, so we have to figure out figure out a way to... to I think move faster and do more without burning ourselves out. Um, I don't know if that means getting more people involved. So there are more people doing more of the work um, or what, but something has to be figured out. I think another one of my disappointments or frustrations is just wondering when white folks are going to wake up and see that this system is destroying them and figure out ways to destroy it before it destroys them. Basically. I mean, white folks uh, are people, people are people and, and everyone has problems and struggles, but because of our racist society, because of the racial hierarchy, white people, even the worse off white people, are not disadvantaged in this in this society because of their skin color. Maybe disadvantaged in other ways for other reasons, and all those are, are legitimate. But skin color is not one of them. So that this relative margin of privilege in that sense, and some are more privileged than others. Uh, it's a whole hierarchy of white people, white people, and. Um, but still, it's, as Martin Luther King pointed out, um, what he called the white moderate, 
which is really, he said it like the white water is worse, is the worst. It's worse than like the Ku Klux Klansmen or the white uh, concerned citizens council. Um, white moderates pretend to be progressive, pretend to be uh, on the side of the movement, but they're like, oh, well, maybe you could just kind of slow it down. It's going a little too fast. Or, oh, I agree with your your goals, but not your tactics and yada, yada. And like they're, or your tone. Yeah, maybe you could just tone it down a bit. Um, these are this, this, this is the majority of white people who stand in the way of revolution. They stand in the way of actual progress. They, whether they realize it or not, protect and reinforce white supremacy. They value, again, whether, they, whether they're aware of it or not, they value their white skin privilege. They protect it. And comfort. Like, yeah. They, they, yeah, their comfort, their convenience. Um, and so it, it's one of these things where I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know. I, I, f- I figured maybe Donald Trump would be enough of a crisis to put a fire under the ass the collective ass of white people say wake up. And I think some folks are waking up, but still, still, um, there's still, I think some pushback, there's still some resistance, still some foot dragging. And I don't know what it is. Maybe they're biding their time. I think maybe things will get better. If you just wait, you know, a few more years, things will turn around magically. I don't know. I don't know what it'll take. Will it take like actual Nazis killing people in the streets, which they already are. You I don't mean know. More so. I mean, maybe they have to kill more white people. I don't know. Maybe they kill more people who look like them. Get it together, collective white ass. I don't know. I mean, that may be a very controversial thing to say, and, and it's kind of unfair because there are white identified people who do take this very, very seriously and are actively trying to either check the power of of white supremacist terrorist organizations. They are actively. Um, trying to engage with other white folks this is something that we're doing in, that they're doing in the white caucus like that's what it's for actively um, I don't know maybe running for office so they're but they're in the minority and it's a very lonely place another reason why we have the white caucus to create community for active white anti-racists it's important it's, it's really hard work to do alone um and the PC caucus is for creating community, but also developing leadership of people amongst people of color for us to lead these movements. Especially in a state like Vermont that's 97% white. Uh, one of my main disappointments or frustrations is this typical thing that happens. Um, white folks get together and say, we think that there's some change that needs to happen, so we're going to form this organization. And then... Oh, and then we're going to call like you know these 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 interesting um, active people of color or LGBTQ people or other minorities and invite them to the table for their input. So the whole phenomenon of the table, like inviting people to the table, whose table, whose table, yeah, whose agenda has already been formed before those other people are invited to it is one of my main really burns my ass that has to change and it's a very difficult thing to change in vermont it's 97 white affluent um although i think that affluence is is very concentrated particularly here in burlington hmm. um so it's very much of a bubble in in the in the the whole scheme of vermont um which is a very rural particularly conservative with some sort of liberal progressive back to the lander hippies scattered here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, Black Lives Matter, Greater Burlington is collaborating with the Root Social Justice Center in Brattleboro on, um, on uh, this event It's POC statewide caucus. We actually want to invite people of color interested in forming a statewide caucus form a statewide people of color agenda for the, the state, um, like our vision of what we want the state to be like and our mission as people of color in a white majority state. 
um, you know, we're going to form the table and then we're going to invite other folks to it. You have to, people on the bottom have to be, have to be leading these movements. I don't know if there's a relatively new phenomenon or new strategy or tactic, but it's, it's something that has to happen. I mean, I'm really, we really have to be done with, uh, with this whole paradigm. We have to flip the table. And I don't know if it'll work. I don't know if um, if white folks will go for it. You know, I think <laughs> I think a lot of the white folks that I know will go for it. I think they're hip. They know they know what time it is, um, and they're ready. Uh, I think they're ready to take direction from people of color. Um, and uh, so it's yeah, it's this ongoing process of discovering like how does this place work. And how how does this how does this power structure remain established and resistant to change? And what can we do to not fix it, not just navigate through it, but just flip it over? Yeah. What does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? Ah, uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, this is, this is right here. This is it. <laughs> I don't see a whole lot of it really. Um, I know it's out there, but I don't see a whole lot of it. And there, I think there's, there's a lot of reasons why. Um, I mean, just personally, I work a lot and I think the POC caucus has a little bit of that black and brown queer culture um also root social justice center and um i don't know i think it's very scattered and it would be lovely to see it come together uh, more regularly and be very inviting and inclusive truly inclusive and vocal, visible, fabulous, uh, yeah. But I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if it's, I, I honestly haven't, I don't know if I'm going to go to Pride this year. Um, I'm just tired. <laughs> I'm just tired. I think when I first moved here, I attended the first attended the, the pride march that year mm-hmm. and um along the way before it journeyed onto church street there's this house that was that's on the right hand side i forget exactly which street it's on and uh, a lot of plants in front like the two three-story house and there was a a black person standing in front with a sign that said something like, and holding up that sign as the part, as the march is going by holding up that sign, it said something like, I don't know. It's not my pride center or not my community or something like that. And so I stopped and I wanted to talk to that person and find out like what, what, what the story was, what their story was. And they said, yeah, around here, black queer people are um, just treated like, like commodities. Um, Like white gay men are after black gay men. Um, And, and uh, it just feels very used and abused. And that was my first real, real story i think of what it's like to be uh queer in vermont you know from someone who obviously had been here longer than i had and out longer than i had and um so maybe maybe think maybe you really think about about the community here um and its realities when do you feel most brown and out um
I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Um, all the time, never. I don't know. <laughs> um, right now, yeah. Right at this moment. <laughs> Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay. All right. <laughs> um, is is there anything else that you um, would feel like would be a shame if we didn't touch on before we depart? Hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, shameless plug. So yeah. please check out... Um, Black Lives Matter of Greater Burlington, um, however you identify, um, step up for your own liberation, step up for collective liberation, uh, here in Vermont, here in the Greater Burlington area and beyond, uh, whether you're a person, subscribed person of color or white identifying person, you have a place in the movement, Go into our website is www.blmgb.org. Go to uh, get involved and uh, sign up, and you'll receive emails about our next meeting. Come on through. Um, there's lots to do. Um, yeah, I would just say if, if you're interested, step up, get in here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on Brown and Out today to uh, talk about yourself and your life with us. Thanks for having me, Reggie.